This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. It's an interesting part of our history. Uh, we've kind of lost it. I don't think the, the story is that simple. These Germans, Americans came over here already armed um, with um, having brewed adjunct lager beer for domestic uh, uh, production and consumption uh, in Germany. This week on the show, the guy who explained how we narrowly avoided an American Rhein-Heitzgebot on episode 174 is back with more surprises. Today, you'll hear about the widespread use of malt substitutes in Germany, a beer war, and the birthplace of America's most popular beer style. Hi, I'm, I'm Greg Casey, and I'm a retired brewing scientist after about almost 30 years in the American brewing industry. All right, so Greg, when did you first begin to realize that America's national beverage wasn't born in America? And for anyone who hasn't already listened to episode 174 or maybe all the freshly minted drinkers out there that haven't made it past the IPA and hard seltzer aisle, tell us briefly what exactly you mean by the term America's national beverage. Yeah, but when I refer to, I refer to the predominant style, I guess, uh, there's 90 styles in the Great American Beer Festival, for example, uh, but adjunct lager beer, the standard American light lager and the traditional lager, uh, they're still about 70, 80% of the uh, national market. Uh, they were as high as the 90s, uh, even or, or even like 100 years ago before Prohibition, it was extremely high. So, uh, And it was even referred to as the national beverage in, in the press of the late 1800s and early uh, 1900s, the way it took America by storm. So when I say national beverage, you know I'm talking about uh, adjunct lager beer and its various uh, formations. All right. So when did you first start to realize that it wasn't from America? Okay, yeah. One thing I learned, although my passion is yeast, uh, towards the end of my career in quality assurance, uh, we had responsibilities along the lines of new product development. And I decided to, to take the 
viewpoint of, okay, lager beer, adjunct lager beer, America's national beverage. How does it fit those? At some point, it was a new product, right? Uh, when did it first start showing up in America following those uh, guidelines of concept? Like somebody had to think of it, right? And uh, clearly in Germany uh, in the 1850s and 1860s, uh, there's evidence that it was uh, why, that adjunct lager beer was being brewed for domestic purposes uh, in Germany. Uh, and then feasibility, you know, you've got to you got to find a market for it. You've got to you got to test it. You got to develop it. The the, the fourth uh, third milestone. Then you got to implement it. Uh, and all these happen in quick succession in both Germany and the United States. But ours was staggered by about one or two decades. So in terms of the first concept, Germany, 1850s, 1860s, uh, in, in the United States, uh, we sort of picked it up in the feasibility stage, the very early trials, still more or less kind of like pilot, pilot trials, if you will, um, in 1860s, 1870s. By that time, 1860s and 70s, it was already developed uh, and implemented in Germany. That's clear. We caught up to that the feasibility and the development stage and then the implementation. But as with concept, we were about a decade or two behind. However, we did overlap, you know, from the 1870s right up to the passage of the national uh, Reinheitsgebot in Germany. We both had adjunct lager beer in our portfolio of national brands, with the exception of ours continued. Uh, but as we know now, as history teaches us, the, uh, the German journey stopped suddenly on June 3rd, 1906. So your article asks an important question. All of these German immigrants brewing adjunct lager in America during the last 20 years of the 19th century, was this a new concept for them or had they already been brewing these beers in Germany? They'd already been brewing these beers. We know specific names, for example, of individual brewers who were brewing with rice uh, before they came here. In in those last before they before 1880, they were brewing rice beer uh, in Germany, even to the point of one of them describing it as uh, they were selling it for a higher price because it cost more, and it did back then. Even in 1880s, the United States rice beer would. Rice was a higher price beer. They charged the uh, saloons a higher price because it cost more to make at the time. Um, so, yeah, they were definitely exposed and using it in Germany and Austro-Hungary because those empires were so that Central Europe where lager first exploded. Um, you know, it was just as a critical uh, style. But uh, we do know with absolute certainties that in the 1850s, Ludwig Hacker and others in Central Europe, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, were using uh, corn. Okay, we already talked a little bit about um, this guy who is considered to be the the father of American adjunct lager or the Johnny Appleseed, as you put it in your article. Let's hear a little bit more about this man and, and why he's considered to be so important in regards to America's national beverage. Yeah, his name is uh, Anton Schwartz. Uh, he came, he's not German, but he came from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is kind of the germ, half-brother German, half-German brother, I guess, of the German Empire. Um, but he was trained, I mean, people like Balling, for example, uh, in Prague, he was trained under. And he was a brewer uh, in uh, Europe as well, before he, he came over to the United States in 1868. And it's quite common uh, to find, and I was... Frankly, myself, uh, John, I'm completely convinced uh, 
number not that long ago that he's the guy that started it here. You know that concept. The concept is when it first happens um, because he's often uh, referred to even in period um, references as being the uh, the man who introduced the use of corn and rice uh, into brewing adjunct lager beer in the United States. So he's he's kind of got that accreditation, uh, which is in this social media area, has been cut and pasted and added to a number of other sites I've seen the same story. As I mentioned, that's what I thought too. But then, you know, when I started delving into this and, you know, reading the testimonials of these um, German-Americans that were testifying that, okay, they were using it in the 1860s before um, Anton Schwartz came here, I don't think the, the story is that simple, that one man came over and said, ha-ha, I got something that'll, you know, make a beer that stays brilliantly clear when it's ice cold. Just use about a third corn and rice, right, uh, which was a unique trait to the United States consumers' uh, desires in a, in a, in a beer. But um, further digging, even since the paper, John, remember I made mention of a Hungarian, Ludwig Hacker, um, and I speculated that perhaps because he had that patent that was issued in 18, early 1860s, well before Schwartz came over here, about corn as an adjunct. And since the article's come out, I've been able to find his story he wrote um, of nine months in 1863 in the United States spreading the gospel of corn. Um, wow. So, you know, Ludwig Hacker. I mean, even little anecdotes. And he went, 1863 was the height of the Civil War, right? And uh, he's talking about, in connection with corn, because that's his patent, the use of, they always universally back then referred to it as uh, Indian corn. Um, he was he was in both the North and the South and talking about seeing uh, Union prisoners of war being their only Nutrition was a raw cob of corn. He even connected corn to a piece of um, sad history because a lot of those individuals did pass from starvation in some of the uh, uh, the camps at the time. But uh, he 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 visited breweries in Cincinnati. He names names of the breweries that are recognizable to those of us today interested in the history of beer. Uh, New York City, Philadelphia. So when I wrote the article, I wasn't sure if he came over and sort of work with Anton after 1868, but he was here even five years before Anton was here. So collectively, all these uh, lead me to believe that the story isn't as simple. I have no doubt Anton Schwartz, uh, as I call him, you know, adjunct Anton, he had, he was a passionate believer because he used a lot of them. Um, he didn't think of it here. Uh, the historical records are very clear. Uh, he was exposed to this same Hungarian in the terms of the use of corn. That it, as he described it, it gives a beer that is a paler and a lighter taste. Well, paler and lighter; those are attributes of an adjunct lager. That uh, particularly the brighter part, you know, lighter and brighter, were ice cold in the glass. Uh, they saw applications for what they were doing in Europe, hence the earlier concept phases there, uh, to start it here. Tell us about these U.S. patents related to adjunct brewing that were filed in the 1860s. Yeah, those you know those really uh, shocked me because um, I'd never I never expected to find uh, you know as, as early as the United States Civil War patents on the use of corn, uh, much in the same way as you know the double mash system. If if you view the three core ways of uh, Brew house design, the you know decoction, infusion, and double double mash system, which the latter being uniquely American or largely associated with the United States, to see patents like that issued um, back 
well before Anton, years before Anton Schwartz survived here in 1863, at least in the earlier decade, the same decade, but significantly earlier than uh, Schwartz's arrival here. And that Ludwig Hacker in particular, um, you know, 1862, and uh, he was issued it on July 1st by the United States government. Then he came over here, uh, spent the first nine months of 1863, as I referenced earlier, in terms of uh, promoting his, his patent. And then you get there's another one, uh, and of, of all places, as I say, Kalamazoo, Michigan, no disrespect to anybody listening from Kalamazoo, but about the last thing I expected to find in Kalamazoo, Michigan, was a patent issued in the, in the 1860s uh, by a Bavarian-born immigrant by the name of Nick, uh, Nick, Nicholas Bauman, who was um, a brewer in Kalamazoo. He opened up his own brewery, and uh, his patent, uh, May 1869, um, but again, you know, that's... Shorts had only been here for months at that time. What I don't know, John, is why they're lost to history. Uh, these individuals, you read the patents and you get a very good look at them in the paper. Uh, you see uh, they weren't uh, subtle. I mean, it was using Indian corn to make a lighter beer. Um, and I don't know why we've forgotten about them. I'd never heard of them prior to this research. Uh, and But oddly enough, who does not have a patent? Anton Schwartz. I could not find in any data search of U.S. patents uh, him having a patent, which you might think if he was the father of it in the United States, he just doesn't have one. And retrospectively, I think he didn't get one because they already are in existence, right? So, but he lived here, you know, and uh, he, well, he lived in the heart of uh, uh, where things were happening in the United States and the Northeast Coast, whereas, uh, you know, Kalamazoo in the 1860s was probably a, a pretty Pretty frontier-like town on what was then still considered the uh, American West. So I, I think the modern brewer would recognize the other mashing systems that you, you mentioned, but um, might not be familiar with the double mash system. What exactly is that? Yeah, you know, that image there in the paper of the double mash uh, system uh, as being uniquely American, again, that's part of our history, I believe. You know, it's validation of America has a history of its own because decoction uh, being German and infusion, if you will, being a British way of mashing, the double mash was ours. And uh, that double mash, um, yeah, the, the two, you see the two open vessels there, and, and they were made of wood in the drawing, which is pretty wild, which was true for the 1860s. Even Brewhouse vessels were made of wood. But uh, the word rice cooker, you know, in terms of uh, became synonymous uh, almost with American brewing, uh, where you would take the whether it's called rice, but you could use corn grits as well as rice grits and uh, add a little bit of um, malt uh, to provide amylytic enzymes. But uh, cookers and mash cookers and vessels of that nature were um, so were incredibly American um, for the 1800s and early parts of the 1900s. And, um, you know, it was a technology that um, was was really uh, very well developed in the United States and, and around the world as part of our uh, changes in processes and, and technology to make our style of beer, adjunct lager beer. And uh, it's, a, it's an interesting part of our history. Uh, we've kind of lost it. 
you know, most of my career, John, was spent with brewers that were using, uh, uh, with the exception of Anheuser-Busch briefly there with rice, but overwhelmingly with Stroh and, and elsewhere, uh, syrups. And if you're adding using syrups for fermentable extract, you don't need a cooker because it's already converted. And uh, syrups are added directly to the kettle. So you don't see that double mash necessarily in the more modern uh, macro breweries, uh, but it, it's very much, it was very alive in the 19th century. So hope that helps. Greg, what happened at the 63rd Convention of the Master Brewers Association of the Americas? Well, that was an interesting one, and um, I was able to get uh, – uh, and it's going to be uh, – when, when the book eventually comes out to early next year, I was given access uh, to the estate, uh, the, the, the library collection of uh, Carl Strauss, who's a legend in the uh, American brewing industry. I consider him a, a gentleman that um, lived a life in both revolutions, adjunct lager beer, and then when he retired in his 80s and 90s, uh, he was there as a consultant for a lot of very prominent craft brewers now, for example. So he, he lived in both worlds uh, and was able to get uh, through the American Breweriana Association in Potosi, uh, Wisconsin, where they donate, the family donated his archives. Included in that were all his personal copies from the 1940s and 1950s of the Master Brewer meetings, which is a uh, you can't get this online. It was, um, and they're not even in the library at uh, the headquarters in St. Paul. Uh, it was a blessing to be able to um, come across these. And in, in 1950, this is after the war, Second World War. Uh, they were doing, still doing retrospective. Uh, what did we learn about, for example, using tapioca or potatoes and all these uh, uh, weird adjuncts? It's hard to believe today they were using in the 40s, but they had to because corn and rice uh, were so limited, uh, being used for other purposes. And this this conversation uh, came up um, talking about pros and cons of uh, rice, uh, and this gentleman, by the, a gentleman by the name, and I believe he was well into his seventies at that point in time, was um, uh, was William Graf. And Graf was a German brewer. He was born in Germany. His father was a brewer. He learned the craft in, in Germany before coming over to the United States in uh, 1902. But he talked about in defense of rice as being superior to corn or tapioca or these all these other uh, sources of both substitutes. He shared his personal experience. And it kind of gets back, John, to touch on an earlier point, another example of a German-American pointing back to the use of uh, malt substitutes in Germany. And he talked about... Um, his, his, um, his, they were brewing with rice um, before he came over in Germany. Uh, but then he made a really interesting, and, and I'd be curious, uh, particularly some listeners, because I've been told through the grapevine that the reference he made to uh, Mr. Pardon my pronunciation, uh, Mr. Leising Sung, he was brewmaster at Feldschloss Brewery in Munich, for example, which is in the heart of Bavaria, obviously. But he made the uh, comment that uh, when he was still in Germany, this particular um, Mr. Leising at Feldschloss said, you want to make a better beer? use rice <laughs> and it just kind of went whoa uh this is you know munich bavaria so I, i'm not reading anything into that in terms of were they using rice in munich i would assume not because the pressure would be so great with the uh but it does it is revealing in terms of from an industry perspective uh in 1902 in the years just before the national Rhine heights cobalt was uh, put in place um that you know rice was viewed quite favorably obviously 
So it's kind of a nice, a little little things you find when you're reading, and it's like, whoa, that one, that that's really that's really interesting. I wasn't expecting that. That's part of the surprising part of this research. Okay, you just mentioned earlier some other um, adjuncts that were used, like potatoes and tapioca and stuff like that. So obviously, this isn't just about rice and corn. Tell us what else was used to brew beer in Germany before it was outlawed in 1906. Uh, great question. Uh, two. Uh, let's put it this way. Uh, potatoes were to Germany what corn is and was to the United States of America. Uh, they didn't grow a lot of corn in Germany. They did in Hungary, for example, and uh, that's where that fellow I was referring to uh, earlier, um, the, the Ludwig, who had the patent in the 1860s on the use of corn. He, he, there was apparently a lot of corn, like a third of the agriculture at that time in Hungary was corn. So they were using a, a lot of uh, corn there. But to your question, a potato were the king, and uh, a huge industry in Germany in the late 1800s was the manufacture of sugars and syrups from potato starch. So you would add the same thing we were doing over on this side with corn, where it's an, an acid hydrolysis. You create fermentables. You, uh, uh, you you neutralize the acid. You clean it up. You wash it, and you've got sugars and syrups. So uh, in Germany. Clearly, potatoes were very commonly used. And when you read the um, documents talking about which materials should be protected or banned, there was a pretty strong lobby to protect the other industry, which was the glucose industry, but glucose made from potatoes. Uh, and another one was uh, just extracted, uh, not from, uh, I think they called it, um, uh, not colonial, but uh, some tropical, I think they call it tropical sugars, which were from sugarcane. But there was a domestic source in Germany that was really extensive as well, and that was sugar beets, the direct extraction of sugars. So um, those were, I would say to your question, uh, certainly potato starch as is, but also the various iterations of it as sugars and syrups, and also sugar beets. Okay, so oh, could I yeah, say go one ahead. more? Yeah, go ahead. This one's a little crazy, uh, and I touch on it in the paper. Um, uh, as, uh, you know, in terms of the artificial sweetener, saccharin. Now, I always thought of saccharin as old. My my parents in the 1960s have these little pink envelopes of yeah. uh, saccharin and artificial sweetener, but um, that was quite. That was another product that was developed in Germany in terms of the chemistry and the industry, uh, and it was it was used not in lagers. I don't have any, any evidence of that, but uh, top fermented ales. Uh, it was used in the late 1800s. It was only banned in 1898, but then allowed again by 1923. And in the interim, brewers you can find transcripts. Brewers were providing bars with little packets of saccharin, <laughs> so consumers could add it directly if they chose to, because they were not allowed to legally. So, I mean, it wasn't huge. I wouldn't call that necessarily a malt substitute, but you know, it was a um, ingredient that I, that's about the last thing I expected to find before going on this journey. Coming up. The, the immediate reaction was a beer krieg, and beer is beer, obviously, and krieg is German for war. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, 
be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Rocky Mountain has an online social hour January 21st. District New England presents hard seltzer production by Zoom January 29th. February 23rd is part one of a three-part webinar series on the topic of brewing CO2 and the current shortage affecting the industry. The first 25 registrations are discounted, so act fast. A couple of our veteran podcast guests will be putting on a webinar on the topic of standardized data collection with ASBC sampling plan. That's going to be on March 26th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course begins April 21st, and the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. There's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers. United we brew. Now back to the show. So what exactly happened in 1906? How did Germany end up with the national Reinheitsgebot boat that we so narrowly avoided here in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a that's the heart and soul of this um, this story because, as I mentioned earlier, 1872 when Germany uh, was created the the Second German Reich um, and created a country after the defeat of the the French and the Franco-Prussian, they set up all these laws. And 1872 is when they set up the law for all those ingredients I talked about now are just recently in terms of, uh, you know, the various sugars and syrups and rice and everything else, all these were quite legal. And uh, it's just amazing to uh, read the 
dynamics um, that were going on in that time in Germany. Northern Germany was overwhelmingly uh, top fermented uh, styles of beer, uh, Bavaria the bottom fermented, and uh, the, the, it was relatively small potatoes, no pun intended, um, in the northern compared to the southern. But then lager start take off in the, about 1880s and even in northern Germany and it exploded. And there's there was one side of German society, uh, industry on the brewing side that was petitioning the Reichstag um, to pass a national law comparable to Bavarians because they thought it would help their industry because they, as today, recognize it as a symbol of uh, of quality. And they wanted to have the Reichstag pass a law where the national law that was 1872 became the Bavarian law of 1516. Uh, and repeated attempts were made, but reading the transcripts, uh, the, they were rejected by the politicians up until 1906 for reasons of, okay, if you want this law to be passed, you're going to have to agree to a uh, significant uh, tax hike to be, you know, that, that was their line of, okay, we're, we're interested in doing this if we can raise more revenue. And, um, the industry wasn't uh, particularly interested in doing that, um, or, or enduring that, if you will. Um, and again, this will all come out in the eventual book. But, uh, by 1906, uh, the context of the time, uh, as, as a fan of history, uh, looking back, that was just the decade before the First World War, and the German Empire was going to be going head to head pretty soon with uh, Germany, uh, with Brit- the British Empire and France and uh, Republic of France and the, and the Russian Empire. And they were building massive um, or investing massively in military, particularly on the naval side, so that they could, um, you know, compete with with. Uh, Great Britain's fleets on a global basis. And that's when uh, 1906 rolled around, and it's called the Imperial Financial Reforms of 1906. And beer, the change that made the national Rheinheitsgebot, was just one line item of a list of commodities that were all have increased heavily uh, in taxes as a result of the passage. So the June 3rd, 1906, along with increased taxes on cigarettes, increased taxes on, or a new category, uh, inheritance taxes and stamp taxes, and this whole list all passed on that exact same day. It was all money. Now, there's no reference in any of the legislation as a quality-driven um, development, but it's something, and again, it's hard to believe, but even in the United States at that time, taxes on alcoholic beverages were about a third, certainly in the United States. We're just a third of our federal revenue was from um, alcohol taxes. So in the context of the time, these were big chunks of change. And uh, I believe that that's why it was embroiled. Um, and it was and it was it was something that wasn't terribly popular, but the politicians uh, were willing to pass it uh, on, uh, just in the spirit of uh, excitement of Germany's rising power. Was it so? It, it's you know driven by financial reasons, but was the agenda of purity and quality uh, given as a reason instead? Not in you know it was when you read that not in the legislation itself. When you read the law, uh, the Germans are very good at um, you know detail and specifics. There's not a not even a mention. Uh, in the actual legislation itself, um, and, or later iterations of it that touched upon in the paper, it's just not mentioned. Uh, there was uh, certainly in the, in the transcripts of the debates and the, uh, the times in the late 1800s when it was brought to the Reichstag, um, you know, promoting its uh, passage because it 
there was definitely a, a pitch by the brewing industry representatives, many of them, not all, but it was kind of a split uh, picture, um, promoting it for a quality reason. But when it came to the actual legislation itself, um, it wasn't it wasn't part of any legislation that involved food safety, food quality. It was all it was all finance, 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 finance. Everything was in the context of uh, um, the financial aspects of the empire. And how was all of this received by the German public? Um, you know, I have no evidence, and again, it's probably it, that's not to say uh, I can speak with a definitive uh, um, tone to this. But there's no no evidence in terms of that I have been able to find that the German public um, was clamoring for it. Uh, I'm sure if I was able to access the press like I have for the American newspapers of the time, there probably was, um, you know, because Bavarian's reputation was so well established and so deserved by that point in time in history um but it did the the immediate reaction and this is where i kind of touch on some of the surprises as well um was a beer krieg and beer is beer obviously and krieg is german for war uh and there was a a a beer war that was um the consumer response to it, not because of the quality aspect, but because of beer costs a lot more and uh, was being passed on. The brewers weren't uh, sucking up the increase to, on the uh, malt tax. They were passing it on down the supply chain to um, to the consumer. And the consumers, um, it was kind of a testy time anyhow with socialism on the rise and discontent uh, in Germany. People weren't necessarily uh, in unison agree- in agreement with the government, but uh, the immediate response was a – um, a beer war, a very significant decline, uh, both in malt consumption, ironically, you'd expect it to be the opposite, right? But uh, malt consumption uh, and beer consumption and uh, production suffered as a result because the public reaction was, hey, we're not thrilled with this increased um, cost of it. And in 1906 was just the start. There was another equally even more significant hike in 1909, just three years later, uh, to raise more revenue uh, where the beer war or even got more serious, even um, parts of Bavaria said um, we, we, that was their form of protest. So that was their reaction. It wasn't euphoria. It wasn't, okay, when the beer of northern Germany, now we know will be this, as good as uh, Bavaria's. It was anything but. And it was really, deb- it was really, really quite, you, you read PhD theses uh, from the German theses from on the malting industry and the brewing industry and the effect of this passage of June 3rd was anything but positive. All right, so you wrote about three curveballs after uh, three curveballs that occurred after the 1906 law. Tell us about those. Yeah, the the first one because uh, again the, these the overall series of the of the books are the themes of inspiring and surprising and um, overwhelming in, in an American ton- context, of course, but in this particular. Uh, Topic: the German aspect, and there's a fellow by the name of Wilhelm Windisch, and he was the uh, person uh, instrumental in the founding of VLB in Berlin. Still very active today, uh, still very much part of the uh, the brewing community, both in Germany and, and globally. So this, he was the founder, and he came over here. He was the uh, personal envoy of uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, um, and to give a speech to the assembled. Uh, 
USBA, United States Brewers Association's annual meeting in Boston, 1912. And in the course of uh, before he did that, uh, he was interviewed when he arrived in New York. And it's cool. You could actually see the registry and you go into Ancestries.com and there's all these records and you could see his name listed there with his wife um, that they arrived in New York City. And he was interviewed um, by a reporter from the New York Journal of Commerce uh, about the topic that was then hot in the United States. Uh, should corn and rice be banned? Because 1911 was uh, probably the denouement of the federal efforts to do that, and they hadn't quite given up yet. Uh, so he asked Vintage, I assume, I don't know for sure, but I assume he asked Vintage because he assumed that Vintage would agree with the overall sentiment of the media of the time was it's terrible. It's adulterated beer using corn and rice. And when I read what he had to say to that report, he basically ripped the strip off saying anything but. Uh, he said it was passed. It was just a few years after its passage. He said it was pats uh, for petty jealousy uh, for uh, s- specific uh, groups like the agriculture industry and um, that, that rice wasn't a crop, the agriculture, that it wasn't uh, used. Rice wasn't grown in Germany. Why should we use it? Uh, same kind of thing. I remember from New York, they were saying that as one of their arguments too. Why use rice? Well, that was because in the South, after the Civil War, there's still a lot of dirt going back and forth. Um, but yeah, it was the fact that uh, the most prominent, or one of the most prominent, prominent along with Lindner at Weinstefen, uh, had such strong views that um, he did not agree with its passage. So that was the first curveball. He also said something um, pretty interesting once he was able to address that group in Boston. Yeah, he, you know, and this kind of touches on um, one of the passions I have in fueling um, th- this uh, nine book series on the history of, of the American brewing industry, 1840s to 1940s, is I keep coming across on the internet interviews with, uh, um, especially especially in the craft industry, um, of the condensed to the theme of the United States doesn't have its own history. Belgium has history. Uh, English has history in terms of beer history, in terms of beer styles. Germany has history. And yeah, I read interviews and, you know, we don't know what American beer yet is because we don't have our own history. And that's a subject that I hope uh, uh, 10 years from now, John, when these are all out, uh, they'll say, oh, yeah, man, I, we've got an amazing history, uh, the United States. And uh, part of that history, a big part of that history was the figuring out and again, it was driven by the marketplace uh, for the need of the American consumer to have a crystal clear, an ice cold lager beer in a glass. We drink it in a glass. They, over there, they sipped it in a stein. We saw our beer. They didn't see it. We wanted it uh, lighter to drink because of our lifestyle. We didn't sit around um, sipping beer. And it, there's many articles of Germans visiting the United States in the 1800s just all cringing with it how painful it was to watch Americans drink because they sort of quaffed it and whatever. But be it as it may, he acknowledged in his opening statements to the assembly there that um, we have been your students, that we have learned much from you because nobody else, they had no reason to need to to develop um, a long-term stable beer. Um, That was uniquely American. The development of that, the combinations of processes, technologies, and material – 
Yeah, they they just you read their results, you read their statements um, when for the Colombian Exposition, eighteen ninety three. Many of them took the opportunity to travel to the United States, and they couldn't believe if when they got to the Southwest and the heat and everything, all that nature, put a bottle of beer on ice and poured. It was it was crystal clear. There was no haze. There was no turbidity. I mean that. I mean we take it for granted today, but that that was something that was the marvel of the time nobody else had figured out how to do that and it was one of the reasons um, that it exploded the way that it did and the supporting science and technology behind that that's what uh, vintage was referring to in terms of we've learned a lot you know because they wanted to export beer as well so uh, i found that as a uh, to hear a german say that that's not great casey saying we have history or traditions um but that's you know the head of uh, vlb saying uh, we have been your your students and we've learned much wow. and then, but what i don't say in the paper then he went on to chastise them uh, john <laughs> the audience he said, you don't pay enough attention to german uh science and, and publications you know sort of ch- chastising them for going off on their own he wanted them to pay more attention to the uh fatherland if you will whatever so i found the dichotomy of that uh first uh you know the sort of the uh the nice night the nice wilhelm and then the other one saying admonishing them for not uh for not tapping in to the extent he wanted them to the german german uh, literature at the time all right let's hear about those other two curveballs yeah the you know certainly you know there's a whole bunch the uh those headlines uh there's a uh, a series of, it looks like about a dozen headlines. This was easily the biggest surprise when I was doing, you do word search, you do, you know, you, you go in and newspapers.com and you do German beer adulterated or German beer rice and German beer corn. And then in 1921, and just to put it in context of the time, uh, American prohibition had started 1919. So beer was not legally sold in the United States. There was non-alcoholic cereal beverage uh, below 5.5% alcohol, but beer was already two years to, be, to being done. And when I read these headlines, um, you know, read a couple here, uh, German, Germany opened a fake beer. All these headlines are November 1921. Uh, headline of, and now they may adulterate good old German beer. Corn and rice now allowed in German beer. It's like, what? 1921? Uh, my grandfather was a young man. This is kind of contemporary to me. This is not ancient history. Uh, and, and what it, um, was, was what it revealed was a couple of things. One, uh, the animus, you could, it just oozes through that. This, you know, American newspapers across the country using words like fake beer and adulterated, um, lose reputation. I mean, it was just the same animus that had been the American media against the American industry since the 1870s, and now they had a new horse to to beat uh, the German. But uh, what it was, and, and what not touched upon in the paper, but what is in the in the draft of the book, uh, from February 5th, 1921, right up to uh, September 30th, 1924, on a national uh, level, and not Bavaria. Bavaria never used corn and rice even during this period. But across the rest of Germany, uh, corn and rice, they basically went back to pre-June 3rd, 1906. And again, with being great with statistics, uh, rice in particular, rice was about 10% of the uh, of the um, 10% uh, relative to uh, the amount of malt being used, which is was not a terribly different than uh, the United States. Uh, so the irony here <laughs> is a couple, twofolds. One, all these headlines that there was this period of history. When I've asked my German friends, 
if they were aware of this, this is the Weimar Republic in between the end of the First World War and the Third Reich with Hitler in 1933. Um, hyperinflation was rampant in Germany. Um, materials were expensive. Uh, it just it makes sense to me that um, the government said, okay, we'll help you out by allowing these to be used. And they were used at levels that were comparable, um, much higher than actually before the 1906 passage. And ironically, pretty close, at least a, on an adjunct basis, uh, to what the American lager beer was going into prohibition. So get, try to get your head wrapped around that, that American beer was being brewed in Germany. Of course, I'm being a little facetious, but not really. It was uh, very interesting to see the statistics from 1921, 1922, 1923, and 1924. Uh, and then it did. Uh, they did go back and, and make it uh, almost. So and how long did that uh, repeal last for again? Uh, I was th- just over three just and a half three years. years. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was real. I don't, you know, I'm a much older man, and I remember in in uh, high school and even before that, watching documentaries on TV, and you'd see Germans, um, you know, with wheelbarrows of marks to buy a, a loaf of bread, for example. I mean, it was just an insane time. The reparations that Germany had to pay uh, for starting the war uh, as punitive, but also to had to pay back all the money they borrowed to to conduct the war. I mean, it was just a crazy time. And unfortunately, from a geopolitical environment, that's uh, played a lot of into how Hitler uh, rose the way he did. But in between those periods of chaos, uh, there was a three and a half year window uh, where they were used. All right. Uh, there's one more surprise there. Ah, uh, let me see now. Let me see. Let me, was that the uh, the Hans Rausch? Oh, that. Yeah, yeah. The Han, If you uh, there's books. Uh, Garrett Oliver, for example, uh, he's published uh, 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 prolifically on, on brewing and brewing history, and uh, there's references to uh, the word Rheinheitsgebot. Uh, when did it first get used? And um, you know, Rhine for a quick German. Rhine is Germany. Heights. Um, Purity and um, Gebot law, so German purity law, Reinheitsgebot. And um, 19, it's often accredited to Hans Rausch uh, uttering it uh, in, in 1918 towards the end of the, the war uh, and from the Bavarian uh, people. Bavarian People's Party. But when I started digging into um, Ryan Heitzgebot, again, with using word search on digital libraries and everything like that, got a lot of hits because Ryan Heitzgebot, German purity law, can contextually be a lot of different things, right? Not just beer, uh, it, which is our our familiarity with the term. You know, there were Ryan Heitzgebots for um, religious uh, topics, for social issues, for anything you could imagine purity uh, being the context. But in the context of beer, uh, Ryan Heitzgebot, as a term, was uh, used almost like 10 years before the accredited on um, internet and, and other published sources. So I was a little surprised that uh, Hans Rausch uh, was the individual, uh, but not what history says. It was being used on the floor of uh, the Reichstag almost a decade prior. And ironically, the context which triggered that was an individual who was saying the saccharin industries were compensated in 1898 when the saccharin was banned because it was hurting German industries. This individual was suing, basically suing the Reichstag on his, which were basically uh, acids for adjusting uh, mash pH, which were, were then banned. He was saying, hey, why don't I get compensated uh, by the federal government, by the Reichstag as well? So, Ryan Heitzkevold's got some uh, interesting history. 
Like it or not, the term fake news has become part of American culture during the last four years. Americans spend a lot of time arguing about what is and isn't fake news, but I think we can all agree that there's a degree of bias in some direction from most sources. Talk about the role of media bias as it relates to this topic. Yeah, it's that earlier references to those headlines is is very is so revealing, um, you know, and it's it's actually those words fake beer and as your to your your opening uh, to your question, uh, John obviously couldn't ignore the fake news of the contemporary times and to see fake beer, uh, it was just sort of whole oh, hundred you know almost literally exactly hundred years ago will be next year hundred years ago using the term fake beer, um, so it was it was just an example. Um, in, in to the, ex- the extent that it's a bias, the fake, from the perspective of so many forces in American society, um, the use of corn and rice is something, is, it still blows my mind as something as simple as this, was so controversial. Um, and there, they were reporting the fake aspect was, they were, were saying it was adulterating beer. You know, adulterating has a lot of negative baggage. There are some things you adulterate that could kill you. It did before we had the FDA laws in the American society. So if I was, uh, you know, not on social media, but you're on holding a newspaper in your hand, which was the only way of the time to get information, you know, consumers are reading fake beer. Well, you know, they're probably saying, well, that's, I believe that. That's, it's fake beer. Uh, they're using corn and rice, disc, disc, disc. Um, but, that's the inspiring part of this story or these series of books is the the passion and the and the and the, the just the sheer energy that the industry represented that industry representatives both brewers and brewing scientists in their testimonies in front of um, federal hearings as I mentioned earlier or state hearings or interviewing the or, or asking to be interviewed by the local media to defend the practice and to explain it. Just like that earlier example we talked about earlier in terms of the American Beer Manifesto in 1881. So, yeah, the um, the fake – to me, the fake was uh, – the argument, it was adulterated. Um, you know, rice, if it was adulterated, then Germans were making adulterated beer as the 1921s uh, headlines in American newspapers insinuated. Not insinuated, flat out said it. So, yeah, that um, – that was a big – that's the heart and soul of the series. It's not the technical aspects of making beer. Um, I'm not a trained brewer. I'm a brewing scientist. You know, my son loves to tease me that I, I haven't earned the stripes to be called a brewer. And he's, he's, <laughs> he's correct. I'm a dinosaur that hung in there with a PhD to, in a applied research and quality assurance world. But, um, you know, fake, fake was something that uh, – was was a was a theme that permeated, and it, not just for a few. The examples were 1921 headlines, but you found headlines like that in every American newspaper from the 1870s right up to uh, Prohibition. Every year, an assault on the industry. It's remarkable in a way that the industry did so well when you you consider that overwhelmingly the animus was there on a regular basis and in, and pretty. Pretty, um, pretty intense too. That people had strong opinions on the subject, just like uh, today's uh, divided country. Did you encounter a sim- similar level of media bias in Europe as as Germany was going through this process? That's a great question, and I really can't answer that um, because I'm handicapped by. Being well, I do speak both Canadian and American, so I guess I'm bilingual. 
but um, I just don't have uh, the ability to go through newspapers.coms, for example, to the degree that I did for the American press to know what was being said uh, in the presses of uh, Germany and other places. I can say, though, uh, specific to United Kingdom, um, there was uh, a similar culture, if you will, or or bias against the use of uh, corn and rice or any type of uh, malt substitutes. Uh, the, the the royal beer hearings of 1899 in the United Kingdom um, was uh, the British equivalent of what uh, took place on June 3rd, 1906 in Germany, and almost took place, uh, 1911 in particular, in 1890 in the United States. Uh, there was likewise an animus in the press and in, in, um, an assumption that it was cheapening beer to use malt substitutes. And the British, I mean, there are volumes of hearings on it in 1899, including uh, uh, many Americans, uh, uh, German-Americans, but Americans by this point in time, mostly, uh, I think most have been citizens by 1899, who came over and testified on behalf of the brewing, of Britain's uh, brewing industry to uh, testify on behalf of their behalf on the use of malt substitutes in the United States of America, which is fascinating. Um, so yeah, there in Germany, in England, yes, I would say that's true. But I, I'd love to know, John, what the uh, American or the German press of this era had to say on it. My assumption, and again, it's just an assumption, is it would be exactly the same as it was in uh, the United States and uh, Great Britain. It seems like most people who think they know something about the Reinheitsgebot, and I, I don't mean that to sound condescending because I, I certainly include myself in that group. Me too. I'm would probably, I think most of those people would probably recall the 1516 date. They might mm-hmm. refer to it as the world's first food purity or consumer protection law and probably not realize that it was specific to Bavaria, not all of Germany. What do we know about that law? Can we follow the money there too? <laughs> uh, that's that's the million dollar question. And, um, uh, and, and to me, John, it's it's the answer to that question is we'll never know. <laughs> or, or I think in the first uh, podcast you asked me, you know, which a better a better quality, and I, you know, it's kind of like, well, that's up to the the eyes of the individual, uh, um, and and it's never going to be decided, nor should it be. But uh, to your question, uh, my personal paradigm, and you could, since we just had the 500 year anniversary of the Rhine High School, um, it it uh, sparked a flurry of a debate, or was it a quality law? Was it a food safety law? Was it a um, um, was it financially driven? What, what what were the motives behind it? And uh, I, to me, I think the parallels between the 1516 and uh, the June 3rd, 1906 are so overwhelming. And you know, first first thing in common is that they were both embedded in in taxation documentation. I mean, they were both fundamentally uh, uh, found as uh, the definition of what was going to be taxed, and they specified the ingredients to be taxed in all of these, as well as the 1872 law, right, when Germany was, the Second Empire was formed. So I, I, I only see parallels between the two. Um, you know, wheat was, um, uh, other branches of the Bavar- uh, Bavarian royalty were allowed to use wheat uh, because, um, you know, they were royalty. It wasn't just barley malt, wheat malt. And that was a huge uh, style of beer, wheat beers in Germany in the 1500s and 1600s, 1800s. It kind of petered out, but then it was picked up again and has been revived historically. But uh, everything I see points to uh, financial 
and, and I make a reference in the um, the paper in terms of seeking insight as to the uh, rationale or the forces behind uh, why it passed in 1516. I think the the motives of uh, the Kaiser uh, were the same, relatively speaking, uh, as the Dwitovash uh, family uh, dynasty in Bavaria, especially especially uh, social. Um, uh, sensitivity, shall we say, 1500s was not nearly as prominent as it was or is in contemporary times. Uh, I, I find it difficult to believe that the dukes, uh, the royal families of Bavaria, were altruistic in wanting to protect uh, the the safety of beer for their um, their their subjects um, in terms of being more motivated by money, which fits with being in financial documentation. So, I, I think the 1516, well, it'll never be. Agreed upon. Your and, money's uh, on the money. My money's on. Hey, well said. My my money's on the money. Likewise, I'm sure my thesis for 1906 will never be agreed upon either. But that's what I'm laying out there is my arguments and providing context. You know, what, what it happened on a specific date. There, you know, had to be for a reason. What was it? Why, why June 3rd, 1906? And that's the picture I paint. Uh, and when I see it in, um, you know, financial doc or financial laws in 1906, to me, I think the parallels are hard to ignore. That was Greg Casey here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Learn more about the story of 19th century German-American brewers and their first experiences with malt substitutes in the latest issue of the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. And be on the lookout for Greg's forthcoming book, The Inspiring and Surprising History and Legacy of American Lager Beer. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stop and